morning, everyone. <laughs> Great to be here again for part two of a sermon I started last week in the series Unstoppable. For those who don't know me, Rob Buchan and uh, my wife and I are here today and here over the next months um, to help and support the church in uh, this exciting time of new beginnings. So, Let's begin. Um, so welcome. Welcome to everyone who's here this morning and welcome to those of, of you who are worshipping online. Um, it'd be great to see some of those people online. Come on down for not only the great morning tea but the wonderful fellowship that exists here because, you know, the fullest expression of our faith it occurs when we can celebrate, when we can grieve, when we can dance, the dance of faith, together as a whole and as a diverse people. So today, part three of the Unstoppable series, part two for me, <laughs> um, a series concentrating on the acts of the Holy Spirit of God as the Holy Spirit transforms uh, the acts of the people and the early church. And there are lessons from that time of over 1,900 years ago that uh, are so pertinent to what we do today and inform us also on how we can improve, increase the flow of the Spirit around us and within ourselves. So last week, the sermon called The Pressure of Pain and we reflected on chapters 3 to 6 of the book of Acts. And hopefully some of you have done your homework and had a look at those chapters 3 to 6 because we're going to delve deeply into them uh, again today. So what we did last week, we looked at the rapturous, and there's a word for you. What was the word we heard this morning on the radio we never hear today? What was it? A slew, a slew of something. It's not, not often we hear the word a slew of something, you know, multiples of something. Well, rapturous today is the word, right? So the rapturous pleasure of the events. But also, too, with that pleasure comes the pain. And the pain occurs in Acts through unforgiving people, jealous people, misguided and sometimes brutal people, uh, and those are the ones who wanted to stop the good news and stop the good news dead in its tracks. So, as I said this week, again, we're using those early chapters, chapters 3 to 6, and we're going to focus on how the early followers overcame their pain, the pain of the obstacles, and how we too on our faith journey and our life journey, or they should be one and the same, shouldn't they, occur towards the renewing, the renewing of the church, the renewing and the growth of our own faith. So let's begin in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, may this time be of you and not me. May these words speak of your love, your desires for us, your children. May the lessons flow with grace and generosity, not judgment. May your spirit infuse our soul 
within with humility. And may your son empower the church in this time, this place, and most importantly, in this space. Yes, yes, yes. Amen. Our main Bible reading today is Acts 5, and it's verses 27 to 42. Now, as with last week, this will show you how prepared I am. I haven't asked anyone if they'd do the Bible reading. Now, I'm going to be standing up here for 15 or 20 minutes, and I don't want to do the Bible reading, but I would love it if someone was to volunteer and come up and read what I already have here. Good on you. Thank you very much. Beat you to it. <laughs> oh, yes, of course. <laughs> I thought there was going to be a draw. So. Uh, yeah, from there, and we go over to there. Thank you. So our Bible reading is from Acts 5, 27 to 42. Then they brought the apostles before the high council where the high priest confronted them. We gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name, he said. Instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him and you want to make us responsible for his death. But Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Then God put him in the place of honour at his right hand as prince and saviour. He did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit who is given by God to those who obey him. When they heard this, the high council was furious and decided to kill them. But one member, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was an expert in religious law and respected by all the people, stood up and ordered that the men be sent outside the council chamber for a while. Then he said to his colleagues, men of Israel, take care what you are planning to do to these men. Some time ago, there was that fellow Thaddeus who pretended to be someone great. About 400 others joined him, but he was killed and all his followers went their various ways. The whole movement came to nothing. After him, at the time of the census, there was Judas of Galilee. He got people to follow him, but he was killed too and all his followers were scattered. So my advice is leave these men alone. Let them go. If they are planning and doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourself fighting against God. The others accepted his advice. They called in the apostles and had them flogged. Then they ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. The apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they continued to teach. I should have warned you about uh, Thudius and Gamamiel and uh, the Sanhedrin and other words in there that uh, uh, not every day we hear those words. But you did well. Thank you. This is my 
work Bible. I got this when I uh, started theological college um, 17 years ago, or thereabouts. And it, it looks older than it is. It's only 2005, but it's all falling apart. And I've written lots in there, you know, there's something on there. Hillsong. And uh, he said this, he said, think about this, Peter walking on water, okay? And he said, Peter at least got out of the boat. The other disciples, they didn't leave the safety of the boat. And the crowd never even left the shore. The crowd never leaves the shore. It was an interesting quote and I was, I was taken by it and, and thought, yes, faith is about stepping from the boat, stepping from the security, from the safety of the boat. And the crowd, of course, the majority never even leave the shore. We learn from this and from those passages in the New Testament that stepping out, stepping forward, stepping up is always a risky activity. And it could fail. You could sink. And Peter did sink, but only when he took his eyes off Jesus. And there's everyone else. When you're thinking about when you think about vacating buildings or taking others on or when you think, how do we fulfil the vision that is set out in Acts 1.8? And I'll, you might know that passage. 1.8 says, And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Think about that and how all of those questions, whether it be from a minute, the hardest thing about walking on water. We could be here all day. Give me an answer, someone. Taking the first step, yeah. Getting out of the boat. Doing that first, oh, probably out of the camera range, but um, yeah, taking the first step. The first step, getting out of the boat. Dipping the toe in. In essence, what that means is that we have to begin. <laughs> and we begin even if the conditions are not right, even if we're slowly and locally, maybe at first, as it says in Acts 1, 8, and then from there, slowly and surely. There's another riddle, you might have heard it before, how do you eat an elephant? Does anyone know the answer to that? How do you eat one bite at a time? Thank you, Kerry. And that's what the disciples did. And then they started to spread out to the very ends of the earth. But they suffered pain as they journeyed forward. The pain of adversity or the adversity of pain. We all know about it. But they found that when they came upon adversity, what did they do? They prayed, they preached, 
and they proclaimed. And if you've looked at those three chapters, you'll see those words are always closely put together. Praying, preaching, proclaiming the good news. And the praying, we talked about this a little last week. Chapter 3 starts with Peter and John, always together, Peter and John in these chapters, on their way to pray at the temple. Of course, by the time we get to chapter 7, we see Stephen, the dying Stephen, lifting up prayers for his persecutors. And everywhere in between, Chapter 3 and the stoning of Stephen, we see prayer as integral into the life and faith of the first disciples. And it's interesting too, and I, I, I was thinking about this during the course of the week, chapter 4, verses 34 to 41, if you'd like to have a look at those sometimes, chapter 4, 34 to 41, it was interesting that the disciples didn't pray for the removal of the problem. But they prayed instead in how to deal with it. Not the removal, but how to deal with it, how to live with it in a broken world, if you like. And, of course, it's prayer that gives us the power to preach, the power to proclaim. You can't have one without the other. And think about this, that God can use anyone and does. We look through the Old Testament, through to the New. We've, we've, got, you know, we've got stutterers, we've got womanizers, we've got people who are uh, drunkards, we've got everyone who's there. And when I say the, the drunkards, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, when, um, uh, what's his name? Noah <laughs> had, a little, had imbibed a little bit too much. God can use anyone and God can even use his adversaries or our adversaries, I should say. But look at what God did to Saul the slayer who became Paul the preacher, Paul the proclaimer, the prophet, the healer, the evangelist, the teacher. He can use anyone then and now. In the verses we read earlier, we see Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was a good news hater. He was a Pharisee, teacher of the law, but he slowed down the persecution of the people of the way, the first disciples, and he did this by preaching restraint towards them. He argued that like previous insurrections, uprisings, religious revivals, whatever you want to call it, that Jesus' followers would ultimately, he said, fall away. However, his prophetic words would come back to haunt him and give us today reassurance. Verses 38 and 39 says, If this plan or this undertaking is of human origin, it will fail. But it, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. In that case, you may even be found that you are fighting against God. 
Well, we know that the disciples went from strength to strength and the gatherings grew bigger and bigger and spread further and further and wider and wider. But that's not the end of Gamaliel. He's also mentioned later in Acts, in Acts 22, verse 3. And he's mentioned there as Saul's mentor. Saul's mentor. Saul who became Paul. Indeed, without Gamaliel's influence on Saul, we may not have had a Paul. We may not have had that walk to Damascus experience, that revelation that Saul Paul had. And we may not have had the missionary journeys. We may not have had much of the New Testament without that. Gamaliel. Who remembers Gamaliel? It's wheels within wheels, isn't it? It's God's mysterious ways, even amongst the pain. It's interesting. We, we often think about the Roman uh, Empire as this terrible thing that uh, created so much pain and agony and enslaved so many people. And yes, it did. But I sometimes think I'm reminded of the fact that the Romans built roads. The Romans built cities. The Romans built transport hubs for their ships. Without those roads and ships, the transport hubs, guess what? We wouldn't have had the spread of the New Testament. And the disciples' message, God's wheels within wheels, God's strange ways to advance the gospel, sometimes despite us and in spite of us. You see, God often gives us what we need, not necessarily what we want. And he often brings forward the weakest, the humblest, the most uneducated ones to transform the strongest, the most proud, the wisest into being a true child of God. And he does this by getting us to realise that we are all children of God. And we should always try to be like the disciples, but particularly, as we mentioned last week, like Barnabas. Chapter 4, verse 36, we read of the man from Cyprus called Joseph, but renamed by the disciples as Barnabas, the son of encouragement. The son of encouragement. We need to encourage each other constantly in our journey. We, none of us do this by ourselves. None of us grow in the Lord if we're sitting on a mountain by ourselves, although that can help sometimes. Jesus did that himself. He went away by himself, yes. But true faith is found in community, and it's a community of encouragement. Because it was Barnabas who took in Paul when the other disciples were a bit sceptical about his motives, about Paul's motives. They thought, oh, no, he's going to do something bad. But ultimately it was Barnabas who led Paul to Cyprus for Paul to begin the first of his great missionary journeys. 
That second person, the encourager, remember we talked about last week and we saw the short video. The second person, the encourager, is the one who often makes the difference. So encourage your leaders. Encourage them by your presence, your words, your act of grace, mercy, love, hospitality. Overcoming, overcoming pain can often occur by forming new traditions, finding new mission fields, new ways of doing things. John and Peter started by praying in the temple, which was the Jewish tradition to do that three times a day at morning, afternoon and evening prayers. But what happens in the end, they end up praying without ceasing. And they don't have to go to a temple to do that prayer. They start a new tradition. When they see a man who is lame, they don't give him alms, A-L-M-S. They offer instead, instead of money, they offer healing and restoration. And they don't just feed the hungry. They form a cooperative of deacons who spiritually and physically feed those in need. Think of our lovely deacons on Wednesday here at CAFE. New traditions. And I want you to think about that word tradition for a second because sometimes tradition can be singing an old song and just singing it over and over again. And sometimes we need to put new words or new uh, tunes to it. But um, tradition is something that's life-giving, not taking away from life. And traditions often can become quite stale. Andrew Dutney, many of you will know, was a past president of the Assembly of the Uniting Church back in, I suppose it was the 1980s and to the early 1990s, I think. Andrew Dutney once said this. Now, think of these words. Tradition. Tradition is not wearing your grandmother's hat. Tradition is having babies of your own. Having babies of your own. This is how the disciples overcame, as we read in chapters 3 and 6. Let's finish with a reminder not to wait for the good times before acting in faith. At the end of Luke's Gospel, the start of the book of Acts, there seems to be this time when Jesus' physical presence goes, only to be followed by a time of waiting to be empowered for ministry and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to argue this. The disciples already had many of the necessary tools to move forward and that they did indeed get on with it. The Greek word that we often translate as wait is not wait. It's await. Now, await something and waiting are two different things. To wait is about 
inactivity. It's about not moving. The disciples never were inactive. They were not about not moving. Awaiting, you see, is about a state of being. It's not a thing. It's a state of being. It's about anticipation. It's about looking forward. About looking forward. It has nothing to do with being still, being stagnant, being quiet, being stalled. It's about promise. It's about a heart. It's about change. You and I are not in a waiting place. We're not in a waiting place simply because you don't have a full-time minister or or a long-term ordained minister or CEO. You and I are now called to action. The disciples didn't wait for the second coming. They didn't wait for the church to be built in order to gather. They didn't wait for a hard set of rules or doctrines to be framed before they gathered people together. They didn't wait for morning or afternoon or evening to pray. They prayed as they felt led. They didn't sit down to decide on the correct theology. They and we should be more interested in building relationships, more interested in serving people, more interested in spreading the good news. They acted like today was the most important day ever. Wow, how radical is that? Today is the day. Tomorrow, as Jesus says, will look after itself. Today is the day. So today, I want to leave you with this to actively think about, to pray about, and maybe, as these early Christians did, to centre yourself in thinking, what are we anticipating? What are we awaiting? Or... Wait for this. Here's a really radical thought. What waters do you need to step into or step upon? Wow. That'll make us feel uncomfortable. Let's pray. And I'm going to take the words from a beautiful song called You Call Me Out Upon the Waters as our finishing prayer. So let me pray. You call me out upon the waters, the great unknown where feet may fail. And there we find you in the mystery, in oceans deep, our faith will stand. Your grace abounds in deepest waters. Your sovereign hand will be our guide. And as we call upon your name, we remind ourselves that you have never failed and you won't start now. For we are yours and you are ours. Amen.